Thanks for listening tonight. If you'd like to listen ad-free and get access to exclusive bonus episodes, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed in the show notes. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. It's always a pleasure to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be returning to Jane Eyre, but before we do that, take a moment here to breathe and relax. Let's start by taking a big stretch. Focus on relaxing your muscles. Inhale, squeezing your shoulders up to your ears for a moment. Then drop them down fully on your exhale. Next, we'll focus on clearing your mind. Inhale deeply and gather together all your worries or concerns. Now exhale fully and let them all go. The last time you were here, Jane was getting dressed for her wedding day. Jane and Mr. Rochester travelled swiftly to the church for their low-key ceremony, but halfway through, they were interrupted by two men. One of them claimed Mr. Rochester was not able to marry Jane as he was already wed to another woman. The second man Jane remembered was Mr. Mason, who confirmed the statement was true because the woman Mr. Rochester was married to was Mr. Mason's sister, Bertha. Caught out, Mr. Rochester admitted all. He told of how his father had arranged the marriage to Bertha in the West Indies, but how shortly after they had wed, it became apparent that she was mentally unwell. To continue his duty of care towards her, but also to move on with his own life, he moved them back to England and hired Grace Poole to look after her in secret. To prove Bertha's insanity, he insisted they all go back to Thornfield. When Bertha saw Mr. Rochester, she flung herself at him in a violent rage. Satisfied, the men left and Jane went to her chambers, devastated. She still loved her master and understood his predicament. She hated that she had been lied to and knew that she had to do what was right. Having not eaten or drank for a whole day, Jane emerged weak from her chambers and Mr. Rochester was waiting for her on the gallery. That is where we pick our story back up, with Jane in the arms of Mr. Rochester being carried downstairs. So just lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Jane Eyre.
chapter 27 continued. At first I did not know what room Mr. Rochester had borne me. All was cloudy to my glazed sight. Presently I felt the reviving warmth of a fire, for summer as it was, I had become icy cold in my chamber. He put wine to my lips. I tasted it and revived. Then I ate something he offered me and was soon myself. I was in the library, sitting in his chair. He was quite near. If I could go out of life now, without too sharp a pang, it would be well for me, I thought. Then I should not have to make the effort of cracking my heartstrings and rendering them from among Mr. Rochester's. I must leave him, it appears. I do not want to leave him. I cannot leave him. How are you now, Jane? He asked. Much better, sir. I shall be well soon, I replied. Taste the wine again, Jane. I obeyed him. Then he put the glass on the table, stood before me, and looked at me attentively. Suddenly he turned away with an inarticulate exclamation full of passion, emotion of some kind. He walked fast through the room and came back. He stooped towards me as if to kiss me, but I remembered caresses were now forbidden, turned my face away and put his aside. What? How is this? He said hastily. I know. You won't kiss the husband of Bertha Mason. You consider my arms filled and my embraces appropriated. At any rate, there is neither room nor claim for me, sir. Why, Jane? I will spare you the trouble of much talking. I will answer for you. Because I have a wife already, you would reply. I guessed rightly. Yes. If you think so, you must have a strange opinion of me. You must regard me as a plotting profligate, a base and low rake who has been stimulating disinterested love in order to draw you into a snare deliberately laid and strip you of honor and rob you of self-respect. What do you say to that? So you can say nothing. In the first place, you are faint still and have enough to do to draw your breath. In the second place, you cannot yet accustom yourself to accuse and revile me. Besides, the floodgates of tears are opened. They would rush out if you spoke much. And you have no desire to expostulate, to upbraid, to make a scene. You are thinking how to act. Talking you consider is of no use. I know you. I'm on my guard. So I do not wish to act against you, I said, and my unsteady voice warned me to curtail my sentence. Not in your sense of the word, but in mine 
You are scheming to destroy me. He returned. You have as good as said that I am a married man. As a married man, you will shun me. Keep out of my way. Just now you have refused to kiss me. You intend to make yourself a complete stranger to me. To live under this roof only as Adele's governess. If I ever say a friendly word to you, if ever a friendly feeling inclines you again to me, you will say, that man had nearly made me his mistress. I must be ice and rock to him, and ice and rock you will accordingly become. I cleared and steadied my voice to reply, All is changed about me, sir. I must change too. There is no doubt of that. And to avoid fluctuations of feeling and continual combats with recollections and associations, there is only one way. Adele must have a new governess, sir. Oh, Adele will go to school. I have settled that already. Nor do I mean to torment you with the hideous associations and recollections of Thornfield Hall. This accursed place, this tent of action, this insolent vault offering the ghastliness of living death to the light of the open sky. This narrow stone hall with its one real fiend worse than a legion of such as we imagine. Jane, you shall not stay here, nor will I. I was wrong to ever bring you to Thornfield Hall, knowing as I did how it was haunted. I charged them to conceal from you before I ever saw you all knowledge of the curse of the place, merely because I feared Adele would never have a governess to stay if she knew with what inmate she was housed and my plans would not permit me to remove the madwoman elsewhere. Though I possess an old house, Ferndean Manor, even more retired and hidden than this, where I could have lodged her safely enough, had not a scruple about the unhealthiness of the situation. The heart of a wood made my conscience recoil from the arrangement. Probably those damp walls would have soon eased me of her charge, but to each villain his own vice. And mine is not a tendency to indirect assassination, even of what I most hate. Concealing the madwoman's neighborhood from you, however, is something like covering a child with a cloak and laying it down near an upper tree. That demon's vicinage is poisoned, and always was. But I'll shut up Thornfield Hall. I'll nail up the front door and board the lower windows. I'll give Mrs. Poole two hundred a year to live here with my wife, as you term that fearful hag. Grace will do much more for money, and she shall have her son keeper at Grimsby retreat to bear her company, and be at hand to give her aid in the paroxysms, and my wife is prompted by her familiar to burn people in their beds at night, to stab them, to bite their flesh from their bones, and so on. Sir, I interrupted him, 
You're inexorable for that unfortunate lady. You speak of her with hate, with vindictive antipathy. It is cruel. She cannot help being mad. Jane, my little darling, so I will call you for so you are. You don't know what you're talking about. You misjudge me again. It is not because she is mad I hate her. If you were mad, do you think I should hate you? I do indeed, sir. Then you are mistaken. You know nothing about me, and nothing about the sort of love for which I'm capable. Every atom of your flesh is as dear to me as my own. In pain and sickness, it would still be dear. Your mind is my treasure, and if it were broken, it would be my treasure still. If you raved, my arms should confine you, and not a straight waistcoat. Your grasp, even in fury, would have a charm for me. If you flew at me as wildly as that woman did this morning, I should receive you in an embrace, at least as fond as it would be restrictive. I should not shrink from you with disgust as I did from her. In your quiet moments, you should have no watcher and no nurse but me that could hang over you with untiring tenderness, though you gave me no smile in return, and never weary of gazing into your eyes, though they had no longer a ray of recognition for me. Why do I follow that train of ideas? I was talking of removing you from Thornfield. All you know is prepared for prompt departure. Tomorrow you shall go. I only ask you to endure one more night under this roof, Jane, and then farewell to its miseries and terrors forever. I have a place to repair to, which will be a secure sanctuary from hateful reminiscences, from unwelcome intrusion, even from falsehood and slander. And take Adele with you, sir, I interrupted. She'll be a companion for you. What do you mean, Jane? I told you I would send Adele to school. What do I want with a child for a companion? Not my own child. A French dancer's child. Why do you importune me about her? I say, why do you assign Adele to me for a companion? You spoke of a retirement, sir. Retirement and solitude are dull. Too dull for you. Solitude? Solitude? He reiterated with irritation. I see I must come to an explanation. I don't know what sphinx-like expression is forming in your countenance. You are to share my solitude. Do you understand? I shook my head required a degree of courage, excited as he was becoming, even to risk that mute sign of dissent. He'd been walking fast about the room, and he stopped, as if suddenly rooted to one spot. He looked at me, long and hard. I turned my eyes from him, fixed them on the fire, and tried to assume and maintain a quiet, collected aspect. 
Now for the hitch in Jane's character. He said at last, speaking more calmly than from his look I had expected him to speak. The reel of silk has run smoothly enough so far, but I always knew there would come a knot and a puzzle. Here it is. Now for vexation and exasperation and endless trouble. By God, I long to exert a fraction of Samson's strength and break the entanglement like toe. He recommenced his walk, but soon again stopped, and this time just before me. Jane, will you hear reason? His voice was hoarse, his look that of a man who is just about to burst an insufferable bond and plunge headlong into wild license. I saw that in another moment, and with one impetuous of frenzy more, I should be able to do nothing with him. The present, the passing second of time, was all I had in which to control and restrain him. A movement of repulsion, flight, Fear would have sealed my doom and his, but I was not afraid, not in the least. I felt an inward power, a sense of influence which supported me. The crisis was perilous, it was not without its charm. I took hold of his clenched hand, loosened the contorted fingers and said to him soothingly, Sit down. I'll talk to you as long as you like and hear all you have to say, whether reasonable or unreasonable. He sat down, but he did not get leave to speak directly. I had been struggling with tears for some time. I had taken great pains to repress them because I knew he would not like to see me weep. Now, however, considered it well to let them flow as freely and as long as they liked. If the flood annoyed him, so much the better. So I gave way and cried heartily. Soon I heard him earnestly entreating me to be composed. I said I could not while he was in such a passion. But I'm not angry, Jane. I only love you too well, and you had steeled your pale little face with such a resolute, frozen look I could not endure it. Hush now, and wipe your eyes. His softened voice announced that he was subdued, so I, in my turn, became calm. Now he made an effort to rest his head on my shoulder, but I would not permit it. Then he would draw me to him. No. Jane, Jane, he said in such an accent of bitter sadness, it thrilled along every nerve I had. You don't love me then. It was only my station and the rank of my wife that you valued. Now that you think me disqualified to become your husband, you recoil from my touch as if I were some 
toad or ape. These words cut me, yet what could I do or say? I ought probably to have done or said nothing, but I was so tortured by a sense of remorse at thus hurting his feelings, I could not control the wish to drop balm where I had wounded. I do love you, I said, more than ever, but I must not show or indulge the feeling, and this is the last time I must express it. The last time, Jane? What? Do you think you can live with me and see me daily, and yet if you still love me, always be cold and distant? No, sir, but I am certain I could not and therefore I see there is but one way. But you will be furious if I mention it. Oh, mention it. If I storm, you have the art of weeping. Mr. Rochester, I must leave you. For how long, Jane? For a few minutes while you smooth your hair, which is somewhat disheveled, and bathe your face, which looks feverish, must leave Adele and Thornfield. I must part with you for my whole life. I must begin a new existence among strange faces and strange scenes. Of course. I told you you should. I pass over the madness about parting from me. You mean you must become a part of me. And to the new existence, it's all right shall yet be my wife. I'm not married. You shall be Mrs. Rochester, both virtually and nominally. I shall keep only you so long as you and I live. You shall go to a place I have in the south of France, a white-washed villa on the shores of the Mediterranean. There you shall live a happy and guarded and most innocent life, Never fear that I wish to lure you into error, to make you my mistress. Why did you shake your head? Jane, you must be reasonable, or in truth I shall again become frantic. His voice and hand quivered, his large nostrils dilated, his eyes blazed. Still, I dared to speak. Sir, your wife is living. That is a fact acknowledged this morning by yourself. If I lived with you as you desire, I should then be your mistress. To say otherwise is sophistical. It's false. Jane, I am not a gentle-tempered man. You forget that. I'm not long-enduring. I'm not cool and dispassionate. Out of a pity to me and yourself, put your finger on my pulse. Feel how it throbs. And beware. He bared his wrist and offered it to me. His blood was forsaking his cheek and lips. They were growing livid. I was distressed on all hands. To agitate him thus deeply by a resistance he so abhorred was cruel. To yield was out of the question. 
I did what human beings do instinctively when they are driven to utter extremity, looked for aid to one higher than man. The words, God help me, burst involuntarily from my lips. I am a fool, cried Mr. Rochester suddenly. I keep telling her I am not married. I do not explain to her why. Forget she knows nothing of the character of that woman or of the circumstances attending my infernal union with her. I am certain Jane will agree with me in opinion when she knows all that I know. Just put your hand in mine, Janet, that I may have the evidence of touch as well as sight to prove you are near me, and I will in a few words show you the real state of the case. Can you listen to me? Yes, sir. For hours, if you will. I ask only minutes, Jane. Did you ever hear or know that I was not the eldest son of my house? That I once had a brother older than I? I remember Mrs. Fairfax told me so once. Did you ever hear that my father was an avaricious, grasping man? I have understood something to that effect. Well, Jane being so, it was his resolution to keep the property together. I could not bear the idea of dividing his estate and leaving me a fair portion. All he resolved should go to my brother, Roland, yet as little as he could endure that a son of his should be a poor man. I must be provided for by a wealthy marriage. He sought me a partner betimes. Mr. Mason, a West India planter and merchant, was his old acquaintance. He was certain his possessions were real and vast. He made inquiries. Mr. Mason, he found, had a son and a daughter. He learned from him that he could and would give the latter a fortune of £30,000. That sufficed. When I left college, I was sent out to Jamaica to espouse a bride already courted for me. My father said nothing about her money, but he told me Miss Mason was the boast of Spanish town for her beauty. This was no lie. I found her a fine woman in the style of Blanche Ingram, tall, dark, and majestic. Her family wished to secure me, and so did she. They showed her to me in parties, splendidly dressed. I seldom saw her alone and had very little private conversation with her. She flattered me and lavishly displayed for my pleasure her charms and accomplishments. All the men in her circle seemed to admire her and envy me. I was dazzled, stimulated. My senses were excited and being ignorant, raw, and inexperienced, I thought I loved her. There was no folly so besotted that the idiotic rivalries of society, the purience, the rashness, the blindness of youth will not hurry a man to its commission. Her relatives encouraged me. Competitors piqued me. She allured me. 
the marriage was achieved almost before I knew where I was. Oh, I have no respect for myself when I think of that act. An agony of inward contempt masters me. I never loved. I never esteemed. I did not even know her. I was not sure of the existence of one virtue in her nature. I had marked neither modesty, nor benevolence, nor candor, nor refinement in her mind or manners, and I married her. Gross, groveling, mole-eyed blockhead that I was. The less sin I might have, but let me remember to whom I am speaking. My bride's mother I had never seen. I understood she was dead. The honeymoon over, I learned my mistake. She was only mad and shut up in a lunatic asylum. There was a younger brother, too complete fool. The elder one, whom you have seen and whom I cannot hate whilst I abhor all his kindred, because he has some grains of affection in his mind, shown in the continued interest he takes in his wretched sister, and also in an attachment he once bore me, will probably be the same state one day. My father and my brother Roland knew all this, they thought of only thirty thousand pounds and joined in the plot against me. These were vile discoveries, but except for the treachery of concealment, I should have made them no subject of reproach to my wife, even when I found her nature wholly different to mine, her tastes obnoxious to me, her mind singularly incapable of being led to anything higher expanded to anything larger. When I found that I could not pass a single evening, nor even a single hour of the day with her in comfort, that kindly conversation could not be sustained between us, because whatever topic I started, immediately received from her a turn at once coarse and trite. When I perceived that I should never have a quiet or settled household, because no servant would bear the continued outbreaks of her violent and unreasonable temper, or the vexations of her absurd, contradictory, exacting orders. Even then, I restrained myself. I eschewed upbraiding. I curtailed remonstrance. I tried to devour my repentance and disgust in secret. I repressed the deep antipathy I felt. Jane, I will not trouble you with abominable details. Some strong words shall express what I have to say. I lived with that woman upstairs four years, and before that time she had tried me indeed. Her character ripened and developed with frightful rapidity. Her vices sprung up fast and rank. They were so strong, only cruelty could check them. They would not use cruelty. How fearful were the curses those propensities entailed on me. Bertha Mason, the true daughter of an infamous mother, 
dragged me through all the hideous and degrading agonies which must attend a man bound to a wife at once intemperate and unchaste. My brother in the interval was dead, and the end of four years my father died too. I was rich enough now, yet poor to hideous indignance. A nature the most depraved I ever saw was associated with mine, and called by the law and by society a part of me, and I could not rid myself of it by any legal proceedings for the doctors now discovered that my wife was mad. Her excesses had prematurely developed the germs of insanity. Janey don't like my narrative. You look almost sick. Shall I defer the rest to another day? No, sir. Finish it now. I pity you. I do earnestly pity you. Pity, Jane, from some people is a noxious and insulting sort of tribute, which one is justified in hurling back in the teeth of those who offer it. That is the sort of pity native to callous, selfish hearts. It is a hybrid, egotistical pain at hearing of woes crossed with ignorant contempt for those who have endured them. That is not your pity, Jane. Tis not the feeling of which your whole face is full at this moment, with which your eyes are now almost overflowing, with which your heart is heaving, with which your hand is trembling in mine. Your pity, my darling, is the suffering mother of love, is anguish at the very natal pang of the divine passion, I accept it, Jane. Let the daughter have free advent. My arms wait to receive her. Now, sir, proceed. What did you do when you found she was mad? Jane, I approached the verge of despair. A remnant of self-respect was all that intervened between me and the gulf. In the eyes of the world, I was doubtless covered with dishonor. I resolved to be clean in my own sight, and to the last I repudiated the contamination of her crimes and wrenched myself from connection with her defects. Still, society associated my name and person with hers, and yet I saw and heard her daily. Something of her breath mixed with the air I breathed. Besides, I remembered I had once been her husband. That recollection was then and is now inexpressibly odious to me. Moreover, I knew that while she lived, I could never be the husband of another and better wife. And though five years my senior, her family and her father had lied to me in the particular of her age, She was likely to live as long as I, being as robust in frame as she was infirm in mind. Thus, at the age of twenty-six, I was hopeless. One night I had been awakened by her yells. Since the medical men had pronounced her mad, she had, of course, been shut up. It was a fiery West Indian night. 
one of the description that frequently precede the hurricanes of those climates. Being unable to sleep in bed, I got up and opened the window. The air was like sulfur streams. I could find no refreshment anywhere. Mosquitoes came buzzing in and hummed sullenly around the room. The sea, which I could hear from thence, rumbled, dull like an earthquake. Black clouds were casting up over it. The moon was setting in the waves, broad and red, like a hot cannonball. She threw her last bloody glance over a world, quivering with the ferment of tempest. I was physically influenced by the atmosphere and scene. My ears were filled with the curses the madwoman still shrieked out wherein she momentarily mingled my name with such a tone of demon hate, with such language. None had a fouler vocabulary than she. Though two rooms off, I heard every word, the thin partitions of the West India house opposing but slight obstruction to her wolfish cries. This life, I said at last, is hell. This is the air. Those are the sounds of the bottomless pit. I have a right to deliver myself from it if I can. The sufferings of this mortal state will leave me with the heavy flesh that now cumbers my soul. Of the fanatics burning eternity, I have no fear. There is not a future state worse than this present one. Let me break away and go home to God. I said this whilst I knelt down and unlocked a trunk which contained a brace of loaded pistols. I only entertained the intention for a moment, for not being insane, the crisis of exquisite and unalloyed despair which had originated the wish and design of self-destruction was passed in a second. A wind, fresh from Europe, blew over the ocean and rushed through the open casement. The storm broke, streamed, thundered, blazed, and the air grew pure. I then framed and fixed a resolution. While I walked under the dripping orange trees of my wet garden and amongst its drenched pomegranates and pineapples, while the refulgent dawn of the tropics kindled round me. I reasoned thus, Jane, and now listen, for it was true wisdom that consoled me in that hour and showed me the right path to follow. The sweet wind from Europe was still whispering in the refreshed leaves. The Atlantic was thundering in glorious liberty. My heart dried up and scorched for a long time, swelled to the tone and filled with living blood. My being longed for renewal, my soul thirst for a pure draught. I saw hope revive and felt regeneration possible. From a flowery arch at the bottom of my garden, 
I gazed over the sea, bluer than the sky. The old world was beyond. Clear prospects opened thus. Go, said Hope, and live again in Europe. There is not known what a sullied name you bear, nor what a burden is bound to you. You may take her with you to England, confine her with due attendance and precautions at Thornfield, then travel yourself to what clime you will and form what new tie you like. That woman who has so abused your long suffering, so sullied your name, so outraged your honor, so blighted your youth is not your wife, nor are you her husband. See that she is cared for as condition demands, and you have done all that God and humanity require of you. Let her identity, her connection with yourself, be buried in oblivion. You are bound to impart them to the living being, Place her in safety and comfort. Shelter her degradation with secrecy and leave her. I acted precisely on this suggestion. My father and brother had not made my marriage known to their acquaintance because in the very first letter I wrote to apprise them of the union, having already begun to experience extreme disgust of its consequences, and from the family character and constitution, seeing a hideous future opening to me, I added an urgent charge to keep it secret, and very soon the infamous conduct of the wife my father had selected for me was such to make him blush to own her as his daughter-in-law. Far from desiring to publish the connection, he became as anxious to conceal it as myself. To England, then, I conveyed her. A fearful voyage I had with such a monster in the vessel. Glad was I when I at last got her to Thornfield and saw her safely lodged in that third story room of whose inner secret cabinet she is now for ten years made a den, a goblin cell. I had some trouble in finding an attendant for her, as it was necessary to select one whose fidelity dependence could be placed, for her ravings would inevitably betray my secret. Besides, she had lucid intervals of days, sometimes weeks, which she filled up with the abuse at me. At last, I hired Grace Poole from the Grimsby retreat, she and the surgeon, Carter, who dressed Mason's wounds that night he was stabbed, are the only two I have ever admitted to my confidence. Mrs. Fairfax may indeed have suspected something, but she could have gained no precise knowledge as to facts. Grace has on the whole proved a good keeper, though owing partly to fault of her own, of which it appears nothing can cure her, and which is incident to her harassing profession, her vigilance has been more than once lulled and baffled. The madwoman is both cunning and malignant. She has never failed to take advantage of her guardian's temporary lapses, 
once to secrete the knife with which she stabbed her brother, and twice to possess herself of the key of her cell and issue therefrom in the nighttime. On the first of these occasions, she perpetrated the attempt to burn me in my bed. On the second, she paid that ghastly visit to you. I thank Providence who watched over you that she then spent her fury on your wedding apparel, which perhaps brought back vague reminiscences of her own bridal days. But on what might have happened, I cannot endure to reflect. When I think of the thing which flew at my throat this morning, hanging its visage over the nest of my dove, my blood curdles. And what, sir? I asked when he paused. Did you do when you had settled her here? Where did you go? What did I do, Jane? I transformed myself into a will-o'-the-wisp. Where did I go? I pursued wanderings as wild as those of the March spirit. I sought the continent and went devious through all its lands. My fixed desire was to seek and find a good and intelligent woman whom I could love, a contrast to the fury I left at Thornfield. She could not marry, sir. I had determined and was convinced that I could and ought. It was not my original intention to deceive, as I have deceived you. I meant to tell my tale plainly make my proposals openly. It appeared to me absolutely rational that I should be considered free to love and be loved. I never doubted some woman might be found willing and able to understand my case and accept me, in spite of the curse with which I was burdened. 